Amen. If you've got your Bible and you want to turn to John 17, that's where we'll be today, John 17, continuing our series on prayer, focusing on John 17 because this is the last big prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer. John 17. Think about this. Most churches today, when you walk into a church, they will have someone there to smile at you, to greet you, to shake your hand, to open the door for you. We have some wonderful people at our church who do this. What would you think as as if when you walked into a church, someone greeted you by saying, hello, exile, hello, alien, Good morning, you're a stranger. That'd be goofy. But these are, in fact, the words that Jesus uses for his people. We are strangers, exiles. The New Testament uses words like aliens to describe our experience as followers of Christ in a world that is broken, that is fallen, that is messy living in a culture as pilgrims. Clearly, this is not our home. When you were created afresh in Jesus, you were made for a new heaven and a new earth, but the world hasn't been remade yet. Lost people have not been remade yet, so it raises the question, how are we to live as believers in a culture that is largely unbelieving? It's a little simple question that kind of uh, gets to the heart of some of the challenges you might face. Ask yourself, what type of secular media do I allow into my home? What type of secular media do I allow in the home? Christians historically have faced these questions in one of three ways. The first one is they adopt kind of a bunker mentality, right? We might call this fortification. I took this form for two or three years when I was in school. I had no cell phone, no laptop, no internet. Yes, we had internet when I was in school. But I chose not to have it at my apartment because I was walling off the world, right? Bunker mentality, fortification. Believers often react that way. Some people try another tack that might be called overwhelming the culture or dominating These people seek to Christianize the culture. That's my grandma. My grandma, if news was playing in her house, it was CBN. If she was going to get it, it would be from the 700 Club. That was it. Only Christian news in her house. You might not have Netflix and you choose to have PureFlix, right? Or maybe you filter things through things like VidAngel. You're, You're overwhelming things that you see as harmful in the culture. Other people do what we might call accommodation. They're just going along. They participate in all of cultural media, Netflix in the house, and the idea is I want to be cultural relevant. I want to be able to witness in our culture. So I'm taking all the media in. This just illustrates how Christians have a challenge when they're living in a world that is decisively non-Christian. One writer summed it up recently, and he said this. He said, 
We all know intuitively that we shouldn't be thinking exactly the same thing as the world around us about our iPhones or Oscars or economics or almost anything. Social, sexual, more. What do you do with your money? What does advancement look like? What does success look like? What does human flourishing look like? What kinds of jokes can you listen to? We know our thoughts and our lives and our choices should be different from the world, but we're not sure how to go about it. Interestingly enough, when you turn to the scripture in our passage today, Jesus is well aware of the troublesomeness of living in a culture that is against his ways, in a oftentimes seemingly godless society. Jesus calls this being in the world, but not of it, right? What we want to see today, as we continue our series at looking at prayer, as Jesus is praying, the last night before his arrest, he knows he's leaving his disciples in a hostile land, in a hostile kingdom as exile. Yet strikingly, when he's praying for them, who will be left in a culture like ours in some way, he doesn't pray a long list of do's and don'ts about cultural boundaries. He doesn't pray, Father, keep Peter from Roman music. And pray like that. Or don't let Andrew hear certain cuss words. He doesn't pray like that. Or maybe Judas, he only appreciates a certain type of artwork. Uh, He could have prayed like that, but he doesn't pray in that manner. It's as if he's praying more deeply, wanting us to realize realities, wanting the Father to invoke things that are even deeper than these cultural decisions, but might inform them, right? So what I want to do today, as we go to John 17, is spend a few minutes unpacking the text, and then after that, bouncing to three action points from the text that we can use in our culture today as we encounter it. All right, so let's look at John 17, if you have it. Look at the book. We're going to begin in verse 13. Last week, we're walking through the Bible. That's what we do here at TCC. We got all the way through verse 12. Today, we're beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of God. This is Jesus praying, and he says, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. As we plunge into this verse here, remember where we're at in the Bible story. Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry, on the brink of his crucifixion, and we find him today in prayer for his disciples he's leaving behind. He's speaking an intimate prayer to his father, and his thoughts are on a homecoming to heaven. That's why you can see him say, I'm coming to you, speaking to God. I'm going to heaven. I'm coming home. In the prayer here in verse 13, he references things. He says, he calls them these things. You see that? He says, these things I speak to the world. These things is probably referring to the past four chapters in John. John 14 through 17. We have Jesus' final words, what's called the final discourse. That's probably what he's talking about. Then he gives a clear, succinct summary here. And he relates the meanings of the last four chapters. And here it is. He yearns for his disciples to experience all of the joy, to have 
his joy fulfilled in them. The noun there in Greek is kara. Occurs nine times in the gospel. All but one of those references are in this section of the farewell discourse. It's more than any other New Testament writing that I know of speaking on this word joy. John's gospel will invite you into the siesta of Christ's happiness. One chapter earlier in John 16, Jesus speaks on a response to his upcoming death in verse 20 of chapter 16 in John. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, you will weep, he's talking to his disciples, you'll weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he gives an illustration. It's like when a woman is giving birth. She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, from our perspective, it might be easy to read that passage as if he's referring to his second coming. But remember, this is before his death and resurrection. He's actually referring to him going away, being killed, going into the grave, and then coming back again. There's an Old Testament hope at stake where the Messiah would actually come and turn mourning into gladness. Now look at verse 14. Jesus says, and he's praying now. This is back in chapter 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You're going to see the word world used three times in one verse. That means it's important. Nine times in the total passage, world, 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 world. What's he mean? That's everything in our culture that is against God. That's what he means by world here. Jesus sees two teams in life. One for the triune God, one against him. It's like the Super Bowl tonight. There'll be two teams. Can't be on both teams. That's not a rule that you can do. It's not a thing. The world for Jesus would include all government systems, companies, media influencers, anyone in the culture against God, including individuals, of course. Jesus says that those in the world hate his true disciples. Those in the world hate his true disciples. Why? Because followers of Christ are intrinsically on team God. Jesus was on team God. So if you follow Jesus, that makes you on God's team. Therefore, you'll be hated. That's why Jesus can say, the disciples are not of this world because I'm not of this world. I always played on God's team. So you will, and you will be hated. You're either going the right way or the wrong way. Reminds me of the old joke. This guy from Tennessee, he's driving down I-40, and he gets a phone call, and it's his wife. She says, Earl, look out. There's a car going the wrong way on the interstate. And Earl says, it's worse than that, honey. There's a hundred cars going the wrong way. 
He was going the wrong way. He was the one. Think about it. Just think about it. <laughs> My apologies, anyone here named Earl. But that's the way Jesus sees it. Going God's way or the other, you will be hated if you're going God's way. So let's see the flow of the passage so far. We have a heaven-bound Jesus who speaks so that his disciples may have joy. But the world are going to hate these disciples just as they hated Jesus. Now, think about this. If you're Jesus and you're praying to the Father, remember their intimacy and the level of power involved? The Son praying to the Father? There's a lot of potential here, right? He could right a lot of wrongs. And he just said, Father, my dear sheep are going to be hated by the world. What will he ask next? I don't know if you've ever had a coach or a teacher you felt hated you, but I have. I went to seminary and I did 96 hours of graduate work there. 93 of those hours, I got along really well with my professor. But there was one. Man, he was out to get me. I felt he hated me. He disagreed. We, had, we talked about John 17. I said, I think the Father has given the Son a specific people. He didn't think that was true. rest of the class, he didn't like me. You've been in that situation. If you had the power of the Son and the Father, and you knew your people were going to be hated, what would you pray? Listen to what Jesus prayed. It might surprise you. Verse 15 I do not ask that you take them out of the world. What? It's not what I would have prayed. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from who? The evil one. Though the disciples are despised, Jesus leaves them in the world. Why? Well, one reason is the world's not their chief problem, right? It is Satan himself. He is the enemy. Last week, if you were here and you read through John, you remember, Jesus was praying against the evil one. It comes up again in today's text. Makes me wonder, how many times do we need to see it before we begin to regularly pray against Satan who is out to get God's people? Jesus has another reason for leaving his people in the world. Interestingly enough, at least three Old Testament figures, when we read the Bible, called out for God to remove them from the world. Moses did this. Elijah did this. Jonah did it in a prima donna, dramatic way. Guess what? None of them were removed from the world because God had purposes for these people. And he has a purpose for his children. It's to be on mission in the world. Look at verse 16. He's going to repeat himself for emphasis. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He's repeating verse 14. Disciples can't be against God, for Christ is not against God. In verse 17, he says, Sanctify them, in the truth. Your word is truth. So with the news that both the world and the evil one are going to be against the disciples, 
Christ prays for consecration, sanctification. What does this mean? Well, it means to be set apart for a purpose, special purpose. Jesus is setting his people apart. This sounds a lot like what Paul says in Titus 2. Remember in Titus 2, verse 14, we read from Paul that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Hear that consecration language? Purify, sanctify. But here in Titus, we read, He's purifying for himself a people who are zealous for good works. It's very interesting, both in Titus and in John. Sanctification is not an end of itself. All right? It's a means to an end. Paul calls it good works. Jesus calls it being sent, living sent. God set apart my people, protect them from the evil one, consecrate them. Why? Good works. Or that they can live sent in this world. They can live on mission with the gospel and acts of love from God's people. Read verse 18. He says it differently. It's the same thing. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This setting apart isn't a genetic Generic, genetic, generic setting apart? Not genetic either. It's not just a generic setting apart. It's a setting apart that he calls truth, in truth, referring to the word of God. You'll be set apart in consistent flow with the word of God. Matthew Henry says here in his commentary, divine revelation as it now stands in the written word, is not only pure truth without mixture, but entire truth without deficiency. So if we were to sum up the entire passage, you might say it like this. We see in this passage that Jesus will set apart his disciples and send them out into the culture just as he himself was set apart and sent out into the culture. Now what I want to do is bounce from Jesus talking about his disciples to you today and see what action points we can pull out of this passage for you as you live in a world that is against the ways of Christ. So here's the first action point from the text. First, pursue your joy in Christ. Pursue your joy in Christ, as we think through the details of what it looks like to live for Jesus in your life, in the world, you have to make choices. Much of that's going to depend on your conscience and how the Holy Spirit is working. For instance, you may or may not be able to read a certain novel, depending on your conscience and how the Spirit's working. You may or may not be able to watch a certain program on Netflix or hear certain music. But note in the text that Jesus doesn't call out to the Father regarding specific boundaries, right? But he does emphasize something that's even deeper. His message is clear. As we are in the world, we are to pursue joy in Jesus. 
have to pursue a joy in Jesus. How do we do it? Here I want to play off a quote from a famous theologian named J.I. Packer. He touches on one way for you to pursue your joy in Christ. There are several ways, but he says this one is very important. I would agree with him. Listen to what he says. The secret of joy for believers lies in the fine art of Christian thinking. Now he's going to define what he means by Christian thinking. It is by this means that the Holy Spirit, over and above his special occasion visit, occasional visitations in the moments of joy, regularly sustains us in the joy that marks us out as being Christ. Our Lord Jesus wants our joy to be full. Certainly he has made abundant provision for our joy. And if we focus our minds on the facts from which joy flows, springs of joy will well up in our hearts every day of our life. And this will turn out ongoing pilgrimage through this world into an experience of contentment and exaltation of which the world knows nothing. All right? I'm going to hone in on a phrase that he uses here when he says, if you're going to have joy, you must focus your mind on the facts from which joy flows. That's good. Can he be more specific? Please. Well, Jesus can. It turned out Jesus addressed this a couple chapters earlier in chapter 15, verse 9. So you can turn back there. Jesus is going to pick up again on the subject of joy, except this time he's not praying to God. He's actually teaching people like you. He's teaching his disciples in John 15. And beginning in verse 9, he explains how you can pursue your joy in him. Listen to what he says. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. All right, get the connection he's making. The Father has loved the Son with a certain type of love. Jesus has transferred that to loving us. And he's saying, I want you to abide in this love, my love for you, which is indicative of the Father's love for the Son. Following it? In other words, live every moment in this world in light of the love Christ has for us. How do we do that? He keeps going. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. See this connection? Verse 11. These things I've spoken to you. Why are you telling me this, Jesus? Well... These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. All right, he's going somewhere here. So I conclude from verses 10 and 11 that there's something about commandment keeping that's going to help me abide in the love of Christ and thereby experience joy. Now, what could it be about commandment keeping? That doesn't sound too fun. Keeping commandments. It doesn't sound like it's for me. Well, think about what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. In sum, Jesus said the greatest commandment is love God and love people. Remember that? Love God, love people. Think about that. How can loving God increase my joy? Well, think about how you might love God. You might sing to him. You might talk to him in prayer. 
You might study him in the Bible. In short, you'll relate to him. And as you do, you will see his goodness, right? And thinking on that goodness is bound to give you joy. That's the point. Keep that commandment. Keep that commandment of loving God. And you will experience immense joy. For instance, God, I I worship you because you gave me breath today that I didn't deserve. And I have a wife and I experience her. And I have friends that I can share with. All because of you, God. Directly because of you. Your joy starts to increase. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. Keep my commandment of loving God and you'll experience joy. What about the commandment of loving people? How can you experience joy in Jesus by loving people? Well, what does it look like? What do you do when you love people? You may go and sit with them. You might talk with them. You might hug them. You might serve them. You might listen. Sometimes you step aside. Sometimes you rebuke. Love looks different. But as you do, you can be reminded of how Christ has shown you a similar love. Right? As you serve someone, you're supposed to be reminded of how Christ served you. Famous author, uh, Pastor Sam Storm, says this in a different way. Listen to how he says it. He says, I regard joy as something akin to spiritual euphoria. Joy then is a feeling, or better yet, an affection. Deep, durable delight, if you will. And here's the key part. That it is the fruit of a mind immersed in the truth of who God is and all that he has savingly secured for us in his son. That's the key. Rehearse regularly what Christ has secured for you in Jesus. Well, what's that? Immeasurable riches in God in heaven forever. A coming kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth. That's been secured for you by Jesus. A body that one day won't die. It won't age. Won't get sick. In fact, sickness will be destroyed. Christ secured that for you. Adoption into a perfect family. Jesus secured that for you. Satan dethroned. That was bought by Jesus. It's already done. Most of all, Christ secured for you himself forever. You have Jesus forever. Thinking on that will keep you abiding in the love of Christ and your joy will increase. So let's pursue that. Let's pursue with our minds thinking on what Jesus has secured for us this week. That's our first action point. Here's the second one. Remember, according to this text, remember you will be hated. Oh, that's a storm cloud, isn't it? Talked about joy and now remember you're going to be hated. I didn't pick this. Jesus picked it. The question is, why? Well, John 17, 14 could not be more clear saying that the non-Christian world is going to be against us. If you stand for Jesus, you will be opposed. There's an organization called Open Doors. 
And these guys do uh, data work. They do sociological surveys of all different countries. And every year they will put out a top 50 doom list. Basically, it's countries that are the most against Christians. They have policies, they have governments, and you don't want to be a Christian in these countries. The top five, they just put out the list this year, top five countries against Christianity, it's no surprise. North Korea got the first spot, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, Pakistan. America's on the rise, according to this group, with policies that are against Christians. One story in this survey was that uh, if you are a Christian in North Korea today, this isn't 100 years ago, this is today, and you are discovered, the best that will happen to you is you'll be sent to a labor camp for life. The worst is that you're killed on the spot. That's an extreme example of the world hating you, but we feel it in other ways in our culture. We may one day feel it in that way here. Who knows? Most of God's promises are glorious. This promise, however, isn't pretty. The world will hate you. But it's not a one-off promise. You see this elsewhere in the gospel. It makes me think Jesus wants us to remember it. Matthew 10, verse 22 and following. Jesus said, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. A disciple's not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they've called the master of the house visible or Satan... How much more will they malign those of his household? Meaning, if they call me Jesus, a man of Satan, how much more are they going to call that to you? How much more are they going to malign you? It's interesting here, in this text, the type of hate Jesus speaks of might be more what we experience in our culture. Notice he says, if they've called you something, right? They called me something, they're going to call you something. Hate involves being called something you're not. It lines up with the concept in this verse expressed by the word maligned. See that at the very end? They're going to malign you. Now that's not a word we use much, at least I don't in my limited vocabulary. What does malign mean? It means someone's going to speak out of you, speak out towards you out of spite. Or they're going to be overly critical of you. All right? Now, in our society, the more and more technological we become, the more and more this maligning might just be digital. Right? I shared this in the first service, and someone came to me afterward and said, that happened to me just this week. That's the Holy Spirit working but it might be that you are maligned via social media, right? I read an article this week by Russell Moore. It's very interesting. He was looking at the works of a guy named Jason Lanier. Jason Lanier is not a Christian, but he's a, uh, a Silicon Valley scientist and entrepreneur. So he's right on the edge of all the technological advancement. And he was, the making, he was making the argument, Lanier was, about uh, some of the bad things uh, of social media, right? But it's very interesting the way that he phrased it. 
In his book, Lanier says this, it's not just that social media gives the hearing to trolls, but that this type of media are making us all a little bit into trolls. In using it, you become a boorish, mean-spirited jerk. And Lanier says that social media can actually make us into people like this. To make his case, Lanier compares human nature to that of wolves. This is what I thought was interesting. Human nature to that of wolves, arguing that in every human personality, there is the mode of the solitary and the mode of the pack. And when our switch is set to pack, he contends, that we shift into emergency mode to the protection of the real or imagined tribe. Follow his thinking there. He's saying in our digital age, like a wolf, when you're alone, one-on-one, solitary, you act a certain way. But when you're online, you're in pack mode. You want to attack or defend what you think is in danger. So there's more hate than ever on social media because of this dynamic. Lanier goes as far as to say the only constant basis of friendship is shared antagonism towards other packs, right? I'm not liking these guys because they're different than me. Oh, I don't like them either. Oh, and we can be friends because we both don't like this other group. Now, if you filter this analogy through the text today, Jesus said the pack of the world will always be out to bully you because your pack is Jesus's pack. Your tribe is Jesus's tribe and they bullied him too. Author Ted Cluck said recently on a podcast about bravery, he spoke of the tendency online to burn other people in order to get the applause of people who already agree with you, right? And this is the type of hate that many people will experience. And that's the type of hate that the person earlier in the congregation said, yeah, I felt that this week. Somebody hating on me, in part because I'm a believer. Why would Jesus say, remember, you're going to be hated It's the remembering part I want to touch on. Why would he say, keep in mind as you go into the world, people are going to hate you. Well, one, he didn't want you to be surprised by it, but even more deeply, recall that the very heart of the gospel is that Jesus sacrificed himself for people who hated him, right? For to hate God the creator and worship creation is the inclination naturally of everyone. It's only by the grace of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus that anyone has hope. Jesus takes the penalty for your creation worship and allows you to stand justified before the Father according to His righteousness. You're converted. You make a U-turn away from being a God-hater to a god Lover, we're all once of the world. We were all once haters of God and his people. Even if you don't remember it, you were once ranked among the rebels. But God, being rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ when the Holy Spirit came and applied what Jesus did into your heart 
the hate for God went away. I don't know if you ever get notifications on your phone. Sometimes they're so annoying, right? But they serve as a reminder that something's going to happen. Remembering that the world hates you is supposed to be a reminder for you of your own transformation, of how you went from hater to lover of God, and then it's supposed to fill you up with joy in the mighty grace of God who transformed you. He made you do the U-turn. That's one reason God would have you remember people are going to be against you and you were once against me. Praise God, you're not anymore. That brings us to the next point. What would God have us do in the face of a world that often hates us? All right, I remember the world's going to hate me. Now, what would he have me do? Verse 18, as you sent me into the world... I have sent them into the world. As Jesus was sent by the Father, Jesus is now sending you to heaven? No, not yet. Sending you to the world. It gives you a mission. He accomplished redemption. He now wants you to go and speak of it and live it out to the world. But what about my interaction with people who hate me? Well, Jesus spoke about this a couple of times, didn't he? Matthew 5, 43 and following. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That sounds like something naturally I could get behind. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Our, our last action point is being Jesus to the world. When you love your enemies, you are taking on that sonship of Jesus from his Father. Matthew 10, 21. A little later, he talks about it differently. He says, talks about the hate. He describes it descriptively. Brother will deliver brother over to death Father, his child, the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's what Jesus did. He endured in his mission of redemption to the end. And he was delivered. He was saved. You too will be delivered through this method and lifestyle of loving your enemies. Combining these two verses, what you see is God wants you to endure in love and prayer for your enemies. Pastor Kevin DeYoung sums it up this way. He said, the way of Jesus is to tell the truth, be hated, love, die, and then live again. That's what Jesus did, right? He told the truth. He was hated. He loved he died, and then he lived again. And that's the mission Christ is handing over to you in your life. This week, an abundantly kind sister texted me something, and I thought, well, that would be a good Bible verse. She texted a Bible verse. I thought that would be a good Bible verse to kind of sum up how we should live in the world. 
The text is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 and following. And it's a portion of scripture where Paul is talking to pastors, but there's really only one little part about teaching that applies only to pastors. It applies to all of us and how we might live in the world, but not of it. Listen to this, what Paul says. Verse 22, this is 2 Timothy chapter 2. Flee youthful passions. There's things that you did when you were young, right? Things that, yeah. Flee those, okay? And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Are you pursuing by yourself? No. No. You pursue the world along with other people who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Sounds like social media, doesn't it? You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, that's the pastor part, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And here's the good part. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the world. No, the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God can use your love, your redemptive word about Jesus to rescue his chosen people from the clutches of the devil. Part of this involves prayer, according to Jesus. In his book, Center Church, Tim Keller delineates between a couple of kinds of prayer. He said, there's the normal prayers of the church that I would call maintenance prayer. It's prayer focused on the church going maintaining what's happening currently, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but it's not particularly passionate about the mission. By contrast, there's something he calls frontline prayer, and it's focused on the advance of the gospel, the forceful spread of the kingdom in human hearts. And then he lists three traits of this type of frontline praying that you can do for the world while you're in the world, but not of it. First, a request for grace to confess sins and to humble ourselves. A compassion and zeal for the flourishing of the church and the reaching of the lost. And a yearning to know God, to see his face, to glimpse his glory. How would God have you endure in a world that's against you? You can pray for those who hate you. That will melt your heart. Pray for those who who hate you, a frontline type of prayer. Think about your neighborhood for a moment. You guys have this. I have this in my neighborhood. It's the next door page, right? You got that? That's a thing. Everybody in the neighborhood gets on there, and you meet them walking around the neighborhood, and you meet one person, but then you get on there, and, man, there's this girl. She is intense. She is mean. She obviously cares more about her property value than people. She'll be in your face. Don't be surprised if she actually hates you. Shouldn't be a shocker. She's against Jesus. She's not for you. She hates you. 
She's of the world, but don't let that keep you from finding your joy in Jesus. And moms, dare you dream about what it might look like to be Jesus to this woman? Speak the gospel of redemption? Find a creative way to show love? That's living out John 17. How about the people you work with? They are the world. If they're not followers of Jesus, they are who Jesus is talking about in this text. Christ is sending you into your workplace as the Father sent him into this world. It's a simple concept. How can you be Jesus this week? Is this the week to show the compassion of Christ? Is this the week to speak the justice of Jesus? The tenderness of of your Savior. You know these things. You know what people need. Now the unction is just to do it. That's your action point. And as we spend this sermon series on prayer, that's my prayer for you this week. My prayer is that you'll pursue your joy in Jesus in love towards a world that will hate you. Let's pray together. God, your word lands and your spirit works and we don't know how you will use it, but we do know that your word does not return void. It returns power and substance. So I pray that each one of us would search our hearts, see how we are to act this week in love towards people who will hate us. God, remind us of what Jesus has secured for us that we might be fueled by joy in our mission to a lost world. Come and sustain us. In Jesus' name, amen.